Hi guys, welcome back to a new episode of the Dawson D Show. Firstly, as always, we just want to express our gratitude and thanks for everyone who's subscribed to the podcast so far or listened to any of our previous episodes. If you'd be kind enough to write a review on iTunes, it'd be much appreciated. It's very easy to do and helps the show so much and, and obviously helps us impact more and more people as we grow. Today we sat down for an incredible interview with Hugo Tuvi. If you don't already know who this inspiring man is, Hugo's a two-time cancer survivor before the age of 30. He's the founder of 25 Stay Alive. He's a current army captain, renowned motivational and keynote speaker, and a Movember ambassador. I actually reached out to Hugo a few weeks back after following his journey closely on Instagram for a couple of months. He actually inspired me to go to my local GP and get my nuts checked as I was having some pain. Don't worry guys, DOS is all good, so no need to stress there, but... His story is one of courage, inspiration. He's a true reminder, no matter how young you really are. It's so important. We can't stress that enough. It's so important to listen to your body because you know your body better than anyone else and have that annual checkup with your local GP, even if you are feeling healthy and fine. At 21 years of age, Hugo's life was just beginning. A healthy, fit and social bloke from Adelaide who liked a beer with his mates just like us and only had six months until he was finished his army training, Hugo discovered a lump on one of his testicles. And after six months of putting it off, he went and got it checked out, where he was then diagnosed with testicular cancer. After going through the fight of his life, having his testicle removed, and going through chemotherapy, Hugo celebrated five years of being in remission, ready to take on life as a healthy 26-year-old. But he was dealt another poor hand of cards when he was suddenly diagnosed with bowel cancer. Four years on, After having multiple surgeries, more bouts of chemotherapy and overcoming the mental demons of depression that came with it all for Hugo, he's now in remission and living a normal healthy life again at 29 years of age, sharing his story across the country as a keynote speaker, spreading awareness for men's health and being a true blue Aussie hero for all of us to look up to and admire. Guys, this interview was so special for both Dee and myself. To be able to speak to Hugo and hear this story, and I've got no doubt for all young men and women listening, this is going to be such a such a reality check and something that will hopefully spark, you know, some motivation that no matter how healthy, no matter how young, it's so important to go and get an annual checkup with your local GP. Guys, enjoy this one and looking forward to hearing all your feedback. Cheers. Welcome to the Dawson D Show. Two great mates striving to improve in all areas of their lives. The podcast is designed to empower everyday humans just like us who want to add more joy, energy and happiness into their daily lives. Sharing our real life experiences and everyday struggles, relating to them in a personal way. Expect uncensored stories, plenty of laughs and tips and tricks to inspire you on your own journey. Now, let's go balls deep. Hey, mate. Welcome back to another episode. But today we're in lockdown again, mate. Can you believe it? I can't believe it, mate. But we're back on Zoom. And this time we're not together for today's interview. But our guest has the freedom. So we're very excited to introduce him. Hugo, welcome to the Dawson D Show. Thanks for having me, gents. I'm uh, currently in Sydney and uh, fortunately not in lockdown. So I do feel for, for you guys and the fellow Victorians. I'm having to go through another week lockdown. But thanks for having me on the show anyway. We, we should probably be wearing a mask 
safety. You know, this is probably a, an opportunity where we should be uh, <laughs> staying safe. Tell you what, that, that is one thing. I, I was just, I went and took my car to get serviced and just driving down the road and seeing everyone in masks again. It, it was just another reminder of going, bloody hell, we're, you know, we're, we're back into it again. So we are jealous of you, Hugo. You got a bit of freedom. Yeah, no, I'm uh, very thankful and grateful for that. Mind you, so a lot of Victorians fleeing to New South Wales last couple of days. So um, not holding my breath. I'm hopeful, but these things can obviously spread pretty quickly, as we all know. But fingers crossed, this time next week, we're all out of lockdown and, and you guys are doing podcasting again together. <laughs> yes, absolutely, mate. We, uh, we're very excited for that. But as the listeners would have heard, Doss would have given a little bit of an introduction on you, Hugo. Today's episode is going to be very powerful. It's going to impact a lot of people. And we're going to get into the story very shortly. But before we get into your story and the events that occurred, can you take us back prior to those events? Where was your life going? What was your trajectory? What were you doing? Your age? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, no worries, mate. Look, so I'm um, currently 29, 30 this year. And guys, I'll probably take you back a very quick summary. Born and raised in Adelaide. I finished school. Uh, and then at the um, young age of 18, joined the army, signed the dotted line, went down the, uh, the officer pathway. So for those listening, basically means uh, four years of training in Canberra at the Australian Defence Force Academy and 12 months at the Royal Military College Duntroon. So it's about four years all up with the intent to graduate as a young lieutenant. So that was kind of my, my aim, my goal. Yeah, that was kind of my, my future life, if, if you want to call it that, was to be in the army, progress through the ranks, hopefully serve my country overseas. And, and uh, that was the plan anyway. So you're in the army, mate. We're probably going to talk about this later, but what's it like when you, when you start in the army at 18 years old? Look, to be honest with you, it's, I, quite, I likened it to like a bit of a, the college vibe at ADFA. It's kind of a good medium before get, jumping straight into it. So this, is, this wasn't direct entry, as I say, a soldier, where you kind of straight away, you're thrown into the deep end. You kind of had that bit of a halfway, if you like, going through ADFA, which is what it was called. And it's essentially a bit like a university. So you're still studying uni, but then in the background, you're also doing army training. So you're still early morning wake-ups, PT, you know, go out field for, for a couple of weeks here and there whilst also doing a uni degree. So you still have those fun times with your mates at the pub and, and go, getting out and about. That being said, the army side of things is a bit of a shock, especially going from a you know, bit of a naive private school kid like myself in Adelaide. And you're thrown into the deep end, they shave your head, and then you, you learn pretty quickly about discipline, which to be honest with you, that was a big attraction to me. I think I didn't really have a clear path on what I wanted to do when I left school. So I thought the whole concept of leaving home at 18 joining the army, a bit of that discipline, a bit of that sort of that training might be good for me. And here I am 11 years later. That's what essentially drew you to joining the army. Were any of your mates involved as well? How did you actually get recruited? How did you sign up? Yeah, look, no mates actually joined. I didn't know anyone. I've got no family history of the army. To be honest, it just came about the opportunity and my dad found it and said, have you, have you heard of this ADFA pathway? And I thought, yep, I always wanted to get a uni degree. And I thought that could be pretty cool. I liked the idea of moving out of home at a young age and having a bit of independence. So that's what I did. And I highly recommend it to anyone wanting to, to seek that because I've made lifelong friends, great experiences. And, and like I said, I've been in for 11 years now and, and had um, unbelievable opportunities and experience amongst all the health stuff, which obviously we'll talk about shortly. So you talk about, uh, and I really relate to what you say there about when you're young, you're, you're, both D and I, we went to you know, semi-private school as well. Life is very much you know, in our own hands, we've, we're never without, we've always had, you know, what we needed and what we wanted to survive. And, and that probably takes us to the next part of the story is how quickly life can change. And, and as young people, I think we can be not naive, but 
we, we don't see this happen often in front of us, you know, in, in terms of real life trauma and stress and things happening to us. So if you don't mind, mate, can we just get stuck into, I guess, how your life changed so quickly in your early 20s? Because like you said, you're in the army, you're building your way, you're creating a career for yourself. Then all of a sudden, your life just gets flipped upside down. No, it's, it's a great point, mate. And it's exactly spot on with the whole you know, being young and naive and I think there lies a lot of issues and something I'm pretty passionate about with with things like this and sharing my story because I was one of those young naive blokes. I was 21. So fast forward a few years, I graduated ADFA, went over the hill to Duntroon and it's kind of like your final 12 months of army training and that final 12 months is pretty full on. That is kind of, you know, what you kind of picture as army. That is kind of what you do for 12 months. It got through about halfway. So June 18, so to put that in perspective, after four years, I kind of had about six months to go. So that the finish line's in sight, all those th- few years of training, it's, um, it's all led to this moment. And here I was, I remember the moment very well because it's my dad's birthday. And interestingly enough, I'm not sure when this episode will be released, but it was June 18th. So it's approaching that sort of uh, that time and that's my dad's birthday. So it's, it's how I know the time very well because I called up my old man, wished him happy birthday. On a completely unrelated side note, I kind of just said, look, Dad, I've got this. I almost felt embarrassed to say it. I said, I've got this little lump on my right testicle. You know, what do you think? And I remember him saying, how long's it been there for? And I said, probably over six months. And he said, well, mate, you, you probably should get it checked out. And I said, well, I know that. But I've just kind of been putting it off. Anyway, that kind of prompted me to, to go get it checked out. And uh, like you touched on before, mate, being naive, I certainly was. I was the type of guy that would Google lump on testicle and then find the, the least serious condition. So I thought, oh, it's probably a cyst. It's just going to disappear on its own. Yeah, I kind of brushed it on the carpet. The whole Aussie attitude of she'll be right, I think definitely applied to me in that point in time. Uh, but you also got to remember for those listening, I was in no pain. I was probably the fittest and healthiest I've ever been. You know, I was doing PT. I was, you know, having late nights. I was, you know, getting on the beers with my mates. Like I was just a typical young 21-year-old. So it's not like... I was shitting blood or I had significant pain that you thought it's obvious. And that's something important to note that sometimes these things aren't always obvious. Anyway, went to the doctor and, uh, and yeah, I guess the, the rest of my story really picks up from there. Yeah. So with, like you said, like you're not in pain or anything like that, but it, it lasted six months. I'm just interested before we continue that story, why do we, as blokes for a second why do we put these things off getting checked and is there a stigma behind going to see your gp about an issue that's so private Mm, absolutely i think i think it's getting better but i think men in particular i think it's one of two things i think the first is the whole i'd rather not find out if it's bad news they kind of they almost don't want to have that almost the fear in case it is bad so they just pretend that it doesn't exist and the second is, is ignorance. I think it's, it's more the whole, it'll never happen to me. Yeah. It's the whole, you know, oh, my granny was buddy 90, smoked a pack a day and she's still kicking around. That whole, we hear it all the time, the ignorance of it's never going to happen to me. And I've had no family history of cancer. It's not like this is something that I was used to. And, that, and that's, I think a lot of people, they're, they're the two things I take it down to. Brushing it under the carpet, hoping or the fear of in case it is bad but also the whole ignorant part of it will never happen to me. And, and I hear that all the time when people say like, oh yeah, but you're, you're unlucky, but let's be honest, it's, um, it's probably not going to happen to me. And if we all had that attitude, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not really going to go too far. 
you mentioned the Googling and I'm one of them, Hugo, bad, <laughs> like really bad being someone who probably over the last 12 months, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but actually struggled with health anxiety, little pains, little nicks, little niggles. And having gone through someone in my family who's went through something similar, found out that something was serious. And then all of a sudden that's in your mind going, shit, well, if I'm getting a little nick, a little pain, I better, you know, what, what's going on? And I'll get on Dr. Google. And I'm Googling every little symptom and then I go into a panic. Can you maybe share? Because I reckon there's so many more of us that do that. And I reckon that's probably something that we don't talk about either is even at work. I've got a couple of mates at work who we Google our symptoms all the time, but we laugh about it. You know, where we really should be, we shouldn't be laughing about it. We should be actually going, oh, mate, no, stop Googling. Go and get it checked. No, you're right. Look, look, Dr. Dr. Google, I still do it. It can be useful in the, in the facts that it can give you some sort of shed some light on, on certain things and how you're feeling, but it honestly depends on where you're looking to. Like if you're looking at government websites with a .gov at the end, it's endorsed by medical practitioners, as opposed to just a Reddit forum about people who are telling you you've got stage three cancer. It, it, it does depend where you're looking, but look, we're, we're all human. I get it. We're all going to look at Google, but all I will say is that if you're worried about something, and you're Googling it every night, and you know deep down you're worried about it, you know, I have that two-week rule. If it's whatever it is, it's, it's there for over two weeks. It's not going away. That's generally a pretty good indication to pick the phone up, book into your GP, and getting an actual medical professional to have a look what's going on, rather than the internet telling you what to do. If it's a couple of days and your stools are playing up, look, I wouldn't get in the panic mode, but I often say two weeks, is a general rule of thumb. Anything over two weeks, you start to think, okay, this isn't really getting any better. Whatever that might be, go off to your doctor because a doctor is going to be able to see, feel, look, touch, do the results, do the tests that you need that obviously Google won't be able to. I think that's actually such great advice to give people a bit of a sort of trigger warning of a time period of when the Googling needs to stop and okay, now it's time <laughs> to take some action because Google, I feel, gives you one of two options. It's either nothing there's nothing wrong with you or you've got a day to live. Like <laughs> There's not much in between. But Hugo, can you take us into that moment when you're now at the doctors, you're being examined. Tell us as intimately as you want to go and as detailed as you want to go about that experience of getting checked and, and then hearing the news and how it progressed. Yeah, so as I mentioned, I was 21. So I don't know how old your listeners are, generally speaking, but we all remember more 21, sort of that young you know, young, naive, I'm invincible, I'm bulletproof type of age. Went in, doctor pulled my pants down, had a feel around in my testicles, which even then's a bit confronting as a, as a young 21-year-old. Yeah. Said, look, mate, I can feel a bit of a lump here, probably a bit of a benign cyst, but we'll send you off for an ultrasound, which is what he did. And then basically that afternoon, still not thinking much of it, to be honest. Like cancer didn't really cross my mind at all at that stage. Got the call back and he said, look, but we need to see you to go through those results from the ultrasound. Uh, and then you start to go, mm, that's interesting. It's probably a bit more significant or uh, serious is the word than what I thought. And then that's when he kind of didn't beat around the bush and said, look, mate, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but that little lump um, looks like you've got testicular cancer. We're going to have to get you off to see a urologist and have surgery to remove the testicle. And then basically from then on, see where we're at. And unfortunately, as I found out, the follow-up CT scan that I had, which is kind of the, the full scan of your, your lymph nodes, your chest, your liver, everything like that, that unfortunately confirmed that not only did I have cancer in my testicle, but from me putting it off for that six months plus, I had time to spread through my lymph nodes, started going up to my, my chest and, and lung regions. So 
what would have been a more simple procedure ended up being a uh, longer journey than it probably needed to be. Wow. Yeah. Could you talk us through, I guess, this next process then? Here you go, right? You found this news out. One thing I would love to know, mate, is how do you tell your parents this? Or how do you tell your family this news? Because that is something that, you know, I th- we spoke on the phone last week and, you know, I'll, I'll never forget getting that news from my dad that he was mm. sick. What was it like having to tell you? Or were your parents in the room with you with the doctor? Or, you know, what, what was that experience like, mate? Because I can imagine that being so hard. Look, it was when I was, when I was younger, when I was 21. But look, I, was, I lived in Canberra by myself, didn't have any family, didn't have a partner at the time, didn't have really any sort of support, which I don't know if that made it easier or not. But I think I, even after being told I had testicular cancer, I still think I was a bit naive in the fact that I didn't realise how serious it could be. I kind of still thought, ah, it is what it is. But then it probably wasn't until I then told my parents and, and family and, and realised that actually, you know, this is pretty serious. So it was difficult. It was difficult. But I think because I was young, I still had that sense of optimism that I kind of thought, yep, yeah, I'm going to get through this. And as the listeners will find out, unfortunately, that wasn't the, uh, the only sort of cancer diagnosis that I, I had. And as I'll talk about shortly, that the second one that I did have was certainly a lot harder, both, both mentally, emotionally, physically, probably every, in every facet, it was definitely a lot harder than what I went through with my testicular cancer. And that's not to diminish those going through something like testicular cancer because any cancer diagnosis it can be hugely traumatic i just personally think looking back on it i was young and i did have that sense of optimism which i probably didn't have as much of that going through to my sort of mid to late 20s did anything change immediately from that moment in terms of your everyday life was there things that were restricted or taken away to start to take on this this battle what were the everyday changes that occurred at that moment if any yeah look to be honest the biggest one Probably the hardest thing was that the fact that I only had a f- five months left before I graduated. So the hardest thing was when the doctor said, look, mate, your cancer's already spread. You're going to have to have chemo regardless. It's not really going to become a lot worse if that kind of makes sense in five months from starting chemo now or in five months. It's already spread, which is a strange thing that a lot of cancers, it's kind of act now, let's get into it. This was kind of look at spread the waiting a few months is not going to be detrimental to your health. So the hardest part there to, to answer your question was trying to live a normal life, getting through the next five months of training, still going out on field exercises, still catching up with mates, still trying to have some beers at the pub, knowing that I had all this cancer through my body. That was a very difficult part. And that's when your mindset does change because you still have these big nights out in the pier. So you'd go out in a field ex. And I still wasn't in pain. I still felt fine. But you kind of, in the back of your mind, knew that there was this cancer in your body. So it was almost I had to kind of blanket that out and pretend it wasn't there, focus on my army training, which is what I did. Still graduated on my own merit. I didn't just get gifted that pass out. A lot of people certainly don't graduate RMC. Still graduated and then did the whole big graduation parade in December that year. Family was there celebrating, having some ports at the mess, get the bloody two pips on my shoulders. Happy days. But then literally six days after that, in the hospital chair, chemotherapy, crack on. So that was probably the most difficult part as far as just that overall mindset, knowing that it's like doing this podcast now or listening to this podcast in the car, wherever you listen to podcasts, knowing you've got cancer in your body, but then you still have to go to work 
for the next five months before starting the treatment and just trying to pretend that everything's fine, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, that, that, that actually baffles me hearing you say that because all three of us young males in our late 20s, I think about me, you know, going out with your mates and, you know, I'll relate to getting on the beers as such, you know, because that's what we do as young guys and you go out and have a beer with your mates. Thinking about that experience, boys, you know, and girls listening, like you're out there having a beer with your friends and you've got this cancer in your body. How the hell are you supposed to act normal in that situation? Like I, I find that baffling, mate. Yeah, look, and, and look, that's probably what I would, yeah, you know, I'm probably downplaying it a little bit. I probably did have some down moments during those times, but I suppose truth be told, because I've been through so much since then and such a traumatic and difficult time since then, in a way it's almost... Uh, I've kind of not forgotten some of those earlier years, but if it was just that, I think maybe some of the finer details I'd remember more. But then because since then I've been through such a massive journey, that's been like my biggest kind of trigger, if that makes sense. But look, it it was still difficult. I think at the end of the day, I was still just optimistic in the fact that everyone I spoke to, all the reading I did was the fact that if, and I hate this saying because no cancer is a good cancer, but that often say, testicular cancer is one of the better cancers to get and what they mean by that is that it's generally highly um, curable or reactive with chemotherapy so there are some cancers where chemo isn't that effective but for testicular cancer fortunately through a certain chemo cocktail bleomycin etoposide and cyplatinum it's extremely effective so it was kind of in the back of my mind i knew yes the cancer spread however as soon as i start this chemo it's going to be a shitty bloody six months or so I was still confident that it was just going to get rid of all the cancer in my body. So maybe that helped a bit. Yeah. Oh, mate, it's fascinating. And just backing up too, like I just, just not to harp on that point so much, but just what you said resonated with me as well, because Doss and I went out a couple of weeks ago just for a couple of drinks and I had a bung shoulder. So I dislocated my shoulder and all I could think about all night, all I wanted to do was fix the shoulder because it's on my mind. That's all that's on my mind. Like I can't focus on anything else because it's there and I can feel it. But to have an actual potentially life-threatening disease through your body that just like Doss said he used the word baffle and mm. the same deal I can't fathom that but talk us through chemo mate because to go through that at a young age I'm lucky I don't have anyone in my family or immediate circle that are currently dealing with cancer or have dealt with a lot of cancer before so can you talk us through that experience for you yeah yeah it's a, it, chemo definitely was the hardest part of that journey no, no question I think for the age too, it was a vulnerable age. You know, you're, you're tw- I was 22 at that stage when I commenced it. You know, all my other army mates had just been posted out to different parts of Australia. It was literally over Christmas, that New Year period. And the chemo that I had, all my hair fell out. The steroids and stuff I'd have would puff your face out. You'd be pale. So you'd, you would literally look like a completely different person. So that was difficult. You know, looking at yourself in the mirror, going like, Jesus Christ, this, uh, this is a serious bloody drug that's... Not only does it kill the cancer cells, and for those listening who, who have heard the chemotherapy, it kills all the cells, healthy, bad, everything. And that's why a lot of people get sick, lose their hair, side effects vary for everyone. So that was tough. Like I said, especially being my age, I didn't even want visitors, my mates visiting me or anything in those earlier sort of months, because I kind of, in a weird type of way, felt a bit embarrassed in, in how I looked. I and mean, I didn't really want my uh, fit looking schoolmates who, who are 22 coming in to visit me and I'm lying in bed buddy on chemo with no hair feeling pretty crook so i kind of just wanted to be by myself and just be my own sort of my own place but uh, 
look, fortunately, because I was young, I'm told that that can also help you get through it because you can kind of, they can hit you pretty hard and you can bounce back quicker than if you were, say, 70s, 80s, etc. It's definitely more difficult to bounce back. So, yeah, look, difficult. I always admire anyone who goes through chemotherapy, especially those who still maintain a sense of sort of optimism, humour, manage to exercise all those key things because having been through it, I know it can be pretty tough. So you overcome it though and you get through the chemotherapy through the support of your family and I don't, did you have a partner? You said you didn't, but did, did she come into your life at that stage? Look, I met Amber a couple months after chemo and then I had this massive surgery because there was still some bit of cancer remaining. Big eight-hour operation, removed all my lymph nodes, pretty crook again for another month in hospital. Once I got through all of that, got given the all clear, then you're in remission and then it's kind of three monthly scans, six monthly scans and it's kind of ticking those little boxes as they come, building some strength back up, growing my hair back, those little things. I remember when my hair just started growing back, there's a photo of me at the footy with my old man. I'm still as bald as a badger. But no, I remember thinking that my hair was bloody seriously growing back. It would, have, <laughs> yeah. it would have been like those guys who can't grow mows and they get a few little bloody hairs in their mow and they think they've got this luscious, glorious mow like you, mate, <laughs> like you do. <laughs> so anyway, that was kind of me. And I look back at those photos with fond memories. But to answer your question, I met my partner about a few months post the chemo, the surgery, started recovering. She's a nurse. I'd love to say it was a romantic story. And she was my <laughs> yeah. buddy, oncologist nurse. But uh, truth she was, bath- she was bathing you one day and you thought you locked eyes and you just thought, Cor- this is it. <laughs> Correct. Love at first sight, romantic, which I, I kind of wish it was because that would make for a great story. But truth be told, it was, uh, it was at the bar, probably you know, 11, 12 o'clock, a bit pissed, bought each other a drink. and <laughs> yeah. That's even more romantic, mate. So. <laughs> exactly right. How old were you when you met her? So I would have still been uh, 22. That was 2014. So I still, don't get me wrong, I was still a bit crook. I was still recovering. I definitely wasn't bloody, um, you know, running marathons or any stretch of the imagination. I'm pretty sure when I met her, with it, like I said, having a few drinks, that was literally one of my first nights mm. out, sort of post that whole thing. So it would have probably been mid to late 2014 after kind of a big six-month block of chemo and surgeries and stuff. And then she's she would have been... So it would have been, what, 22? She would have probably been, what, 20? So yeah, pretty young, and here we are together seven years later. So <laughs> I've didn't done take, something right. Didn't take you long, mate. First couple of nights out, and there you go. I know. It's kind of one of those things. If, if, if only it could be that easy, but no, no, it seems to work out. <laughs> I know, um, and, and we've all got vulnerabilities and insecurities. This is probably before we dive into the next part. I think this can really relate to lots of people hearing this. We've all got insecurities. When you meet someone, and we're all on that search, how long does it take before you open up and maybe share something like this? You know, because this is such a, such a big thing, such a, a major scar that's, you know, that's on your body and, and in your emotions for, forever. You know, how long does it take before you open up to someone and tell them, you know, oh, this is what I've been through? Well, as soon as you probably realised I had a fake testicle, mate, that would have nothing. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, was, that was the icebreaker when it's kind of like, what the hell is that? She's got no. to grab it and it's... <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I'm proud of my fake, my fake nuts, which is, a, you know, we can talk about another time. But end of the day, I think because Amber's a nurse, I think that helped. I've got a huge admiration for nurses and the amazing work that nurses do and, and the nurses in my life that have, that have looked after me. So in a way, because she was, I think, just finished studying nursing or something along those lines or was at the end of her studies, I felt it was easy for me to open up. And I'm a pretty open guy. Even back then, I got to a stage where I was pretty comfortable in talking about what I'd gone through. So 
it didn't take long to be honest to just sort of let her know that you know I was just recently started recovering from this pretty major ordeal. Things are looking good at the moment. It's still very early days. I have a three-month scan coming up, etc. And at that stage, you don't go into a, an initial relationship thinking you're going to be together for the next 10 years. But I still felt open enough in telling her and, and telling others, to be honest. It was a way for me to raise a bit of awareness, but also to be proud of what I had gone through and um, not hide behind that to kind of let them know that Yep, that scars because of that, you know, and it's it's one of those things that I think to this day I I do, and over time I've got better at doing it. Mate, you're such a great ambassador for it. We see your work and what you're doing, and we're just so privileged to even have you on our show, which we're so excited for. And that sounds like it's kind of the genesis of of where it all began for you in talking and becoming open with people and, and sharing your story. So just to sort of get back into the story around this time, how long was the recovery of that cancer, and then take us through the next part yeah no thanks for that i um and look i appreciate what you lads do and i'm um, always appreciate any platform to to come and share my story and, and and i admire the work you guys do so um no thanks for thanks for having me on but look to be honest it was the next probably four years if i kind of just noting you know we're, we're all short on time so i kind of want to just get into the crux of it but the next four years really i you know day by day you start to recover life goes on you know, it's, it's interesting for those listening who are going through a difficult time, even if it's a seven-day lockdown in Melbourne at the moment, and you think, this sucks, how am I going to get through it? I remember looking back at when I was going through something like chemo, and I think, how am I going to get through this? And throughout my journey, when I'm really sick in hospitals and after surgeries, and at that point in time, we all feel that, but life has a way of just cracking on day by day, week by week. You set the small goals, and that's exactly what I did. I'd, I'd set myself little goals to to, you know, run 1K, run 2Ks, mark off the next three-month clear scan I got, which then went to six-month scans. You know, I'd start increasing my weight to the gym to build a bit of strength back. All those little things for me, I had those little goals. And they weren't big goals. They were just small little goals that you would tick off before, you know, what a year goes by, two years go by. You know, we go traveling uh, overseas, start to do these things in life where you, you're just living before you even know. There's, there's not a... It's, it's not like a period where it changes. It just kind of blends into a, a normal life again without even knowing. And before you know it, we've all done that where you go, where the fuck did the last year go? And you look back and go, shit, I remember when I was 21. Where's the last five, 10 years gone? That's what happened really. And then the next four years flew by, to be honest. And I got fit and healthy. I got promoted to captain at the end of 2017, which was a proud moment because I earned that promotion. I got physically and mentally fit and healthy. And uh, that led, led me into 2018. At that stage, I'm 26. I got a posting to Brisbane. I moved to Brisbane with my partner, Amber. And I suppose the, the final, if you want to call it that, I'll talk about those little ticks. The final tick was June 18, 2018, which is coming up, like I said, depending on when you release this podcast. But that was my five-year all clear for testicular cancer. And for those listening who have been impacted by cancer, you know, either directly or through family or loved ones, generally speaking, the five-year remission mark is what a lot of cancer survivors strive towards. It kind of means you're in complete remission and the chances of relapse are basically non-existent. So I remember the feeling, well, we're in Brisbane. I was 26 years of age, June 18th, couple days either side, but near enough that date, got the scan, got the all clear, and my oncologist basically said, mate, you know, my, my work's done. I, I don't really need to see you anymore. I wish you all the best. And it's kind of a bit of an emotional feeling because you, 
you're kind of like the days of opening your phone up and putting scan into your diary and reviewing with the doctors and booking in like I'd done for the last five years was basically, that was it. So yeah, I remember that feeling well. We cracked open a little bottle of champagne and we kind of just had that little celebration, a milestone for both of us really. Yeah. It, was, it was that moment where I kind of felt that I was, I was happy, I was, I was free in a way. But uh, unfortunately, that's where, you know, my story takes that unexpected turn and, and, and life in general can, it can be pretty cruel sometimes. And for me, that was very much the case. So I kind of had that feeling that I was talking about, June 18th, 2018, had that feeling for, for probably two or three months. And that's when I found myself back into the doctor's room, unfortunately. You're going back into the doctors, mate. So what's happened here? What are the symptoms, you know, that have led you to this new point? Yeah, so it was um, it was my bowels that were sort of playing up. And, you know, I've always had inconsistent bowels. So you've probably heard of things like irritable bowel syndrome, you know, ulcerative colitis, these types of expressions. So I've always had a bit of IBS, even a bit of irritable bowel disease at times, but never severe. It's always just been like, you know, if I eat certain things or it just, you know, your bowels play up. I've just, I've just been one of those guys. It's a pretty common thing. You know, you've probably got friends of yours with similar sort of bowel issues. But I suppose this point in time it was just worse than normal and that's what I often tell people to know your normal and for me it was worse than my normal so I'm like yep this isn't quite right and I touched on earlier on that kind of that two-week rule of thumb early in this episode and for me it was for over two weeks my bowels were just all over the place I had some stomach pains and I'm like this this isn't quite right it just it just did not feel right and so that prompted me to go off to a doctor to say, hey, look, my bowels are playing up. They knew a bit about my history already. And so I said, look, I'd really feel comfortable going off for a colonoscopy. And I actually requested that, which is pretty uncommon for a 26-year-old to go in and request a colonoscopy. But given my history, given where I was at, I think the doctor understood. And yeah, can I have a colonoscopy just to either put my mind at ease or just to see what's going on? And for those who aren't aware, a colonoscopy is essentially like a camera that goes up your bum. It has a look around, takes a few photos, a few biopsies if they need. And it's really the best way to see what's going on in your bowel. And so that's what they did. It's about a 15-minute procedure. The bowel prep's often the worst part. <laughs> but I um, <laughs> look at it as a bit of a cleanse, kind of clears everything out. Happy days. Even then, not thinking anything of it. I thought, you know, at worst, they might say, mate, you've got some pretty severe inflammation. Or, you know, we'll give you these antibiotics and it should settle things down. You're thinking nothing of it. And I remember as clear as day, I had that colonoscopy. Terry was my gastroenterologist and Terry saw me afterwards and I was sitting at the little hospital chair. I'm eating my little turkey sandwich and you've kind of, you know, you have your little tea. You're like this is, this, is, this is a nice little afternoon. And then Terry said, mate, you've got, you had these nasty polyps in, in, in your large bowel. And he said, look, it's not common for, for your age, but he said, look, they're not uncommon. But he said, there's a couple of these nasty looking polyps. He said, look, I've, I've burnt them out to the colonoscopy and I've set them off for a biopsy, which hopefully should get results soon. He said, look, I don't think it's anything serious. Let's see you in two weeks. So here I am, 26, just been told I had a couple of these polyps, booked in to see Terry again in two weeks time and went back to work the next day, typing away at my desk, you know, once again, thinking nothing of it. And I get a call from Terry's receptionist and and she kind of said, hey, Hugo, the, the results came back from those biopsies. Terry needs to see you. 
And I remember thinking, it's clear as day. I said, yep, I'm scheduled to see him in, in two weeks' time. Got my calendar out. She said, no, no, he, he needs to see this afternoon. And as soon as you hear that, those words, you think, you get that sinking feeling in your stomach. You're like, fuck. We all know specialists at the best of times are hard people to get into. So when they're requesting to see you that day, generally speaking, it's just not a little bit of inflammation. But even then, I think I'd kind of just kept a little bit of that optimism. And I remember calling my partner, Amber, and said, hey, Ams, Doc wants to see me this afternoon. And she had just finished a nursing shift. We went to the hospital with the um, Terry's rooms together. And I remember vividly sitting in that waiting room. I was in my army uniform, just like having that sick feeling in your stomach. We've all had it, that sick feeling. And I remember just sitting there trying to read the magazines and just trying to distract myself. But then deep down, I kind of just expected something bad was going to happen. And it's interesting. I've spoken to Amber since then, and she also never said it at the time, but she was exactly the same. She said she just had this sick feeling in her stomach, but she just tried to also put on the brave face. Anyway, Terry then uh, came out, called us in, and I could see this look on his face. I'm like, fuck, this isn't great. He sat us down and does a little bit of the short, the, the small talk, and then he just literally gets his computer monitor, turns it around, opens up the, the histology report, basically, and says, look, circling a few things and said, look, mate, I'm, I'm sorry to say, um, but the, the biopsies came back and you've got bowel cancer. And then when you hear those words, then you just kind of just sit there and you just feel like, I don't know, the next sort of 40 minutes, you're just like trying to process everything. I remember asking him a hundred questions. What does that mean? What does this mean? And it all happens pretty quick. But that was a difficult time, I think. It was just that real, it just sucked the life out of me. Because, you know, I just touched on how June 18th, 2018, I was on top of the world, cancer-free, five-year, big tick, happy days, moving on with my life. And a few months after, you're back in that chair at 26. And that's just, it just sucked the life out of me. And for the, yeah, basically the next two years leading to where I am today, it's just been a um, very, very difficult journey from that point on. I'm just interested about the mental resilience in that moment. Like you've, you mentioned it sucked the life out of you, but how do you actually... How long does it take before you can go from feeling like that and the news has shocked you and to that change of, okay, now we got to fight it. Now we got to go again. How long does it take and when does that mindset shift kick in and how do you even get yourself up for it? No, it's a bloody good question actually. And look, I probably, probably not till the next day after I had time to process things, but I remember vividly walking out of that room, walking to my car and just bursting into tears. And I remember that moment very, very well. Mm -hmm. And you'd, you just, buddy, all your emotions come out. And I remember Amber asked, you know, am I right to drive home? And I said, yeah, look, I, I should be okay. I remember I often say this because without doubt, it is one of the most difficult things I've done is, is then calling my family. And you, you mentioned earlier on, Doss, about telling your parents or what's it like. And this time it was one of the hardest things because, you know, my family didn't even know I was going for a colonoscopy. Their days of having poor sick Hugo going through cancer, that, that they were long gone as far as they're concerned. So to then call up my family and like my old man, who's, he's not an emotional guy. You know, he's the type of guy you've probably seen cry a couple of times. And to then break the news to him to say, look, I'm, Dad, I've, um, I've had this bloody colonoscopy and I've just been told I had bowel cancer. And, you know, I'm fighting back the tears and Amber's next to me in the car and, you know, she's crying and my dad on the other line He's, you know, fighting back the tears and you can just hear him getting choked up and emotional and, and that made me want to cry more. And it was, it was a really emotional time knowing that 
your family are going through this too. And I think that's the, the big one is something like cancer, as DOS would know better than anyone, doesn't just impact the individual. You know, it impacts, you know, the whole family, friends, has that ripple effect, partners. And, and for me, I was in that vulnerable state of feeling I was putting my family through this pain where I couldn't help it, but I felt like it was, it was my fault. And it was a real tough time, real tough time. And, and I think in a way, you know, I'll probably never get, over those types of conversations because they are very emotional but at the same time it's it also makes me so grateful to know i've got that family support and that's a big big thing that unfortunately a lot of people might not have that so i had that family support i had amber next to me holding my hand i had my my family who were there for me and over the years that has helped without without question helped me get through some of those difficult times so Look, that was all very difficult, but it probably wasn't until the next day when I had time to kind of just really just process things when I sort of had to, like you touched on, D, get into that kind of mindset of, all right, well, now I need to fucking survive here. Now I need to crack on with it. And that's what I did. So I suppose then it was getting booked in to see the surgeon, discussing the next steps, having part of my bowel removed, had some complications, uh, went on six months of immunotherapy, a bit of radiation. Unfortunately, didn't quite do the job. There's still some cancer remaining in the bowel. So then I had this uh, big decision. So I'm kind of fast forwarding a year. This big decision at, uh, in 2019 when my doctor said, look, mate, We've tried what we can. They've already removed big chunks of my bowel. I've already been on treatment. They said, unfortunately, there's still some cancer there. And the way he said it was, it's not a matter of if the bowel cancer spreads beyond the bowel, it's a matter of when. And he said, we're not sure when that will happen, but it will happen. It might be three months, six months, it might be a year, but we can't always guarantee we'll get it in time through the through the scans. And then you, you're gambling with your life. So Unfortunately, that did mean I had to make the decision to remove the entire large bowel and the entire rectum, which has obviously it has its complications. And, uh, and that was difficult. That was a massive, massive surgery. I was in the hospital for about five weeks, had some bloody, unfortunately, complications, emergency surgeries, lost about 22 kilos. I was pretty crook, pretty in a bad way. But uh, that being said, and I had a bag for about a year who I called Ted, big part of me, got me through it. He was, uh, he was difficult uh, at times, but ultimately saved my life. I used to look, draw little smiley faces on him and, and things like that. For those listening, it's essentially my small bowel, which is remaining, sticks out of your stomach in a bag, and that's how you kind of go to the bathroom. And through time, once again, I touched on that whole life goes on. I did get used to that. And yeah, basically that was from being told. I, I know I've kind of fast forwarded some of that, but I just wanted to cover as much as I could given the time. And that's kind of the, from being diagnosed in 2018 to kind of where I am now. It's kind of been a big two-year journey. And yeah, feel free to delve into any parts of that as you will. I like We've only got about five minutes left, mate. And, and, and on that note, everyone listening, probably going to jump off not having covered quite a few things that we wanted to cover. So Hugo, if you're up for it, we were actually talking the other day. Once lockdown's over, we'd actually love to fly up and see you, mate, and maybe have another chat. Because, you know, this is something I know Dee and I are very passionate about, which is taking life by the balls and appreciating it because tomorrow is not guaranteed. And Good, good pun as well there, mate. I like it. <laughs> and I, I guess we could finish on this as well because we've only got a couple of minutes. But what has this done for you going through not only one bout but two bouts of cancer, surviving both of them in your early 20s? What is your perspective on life now? You know, what, what, when you get up every day, what is your outlook on life? 
and, and what has it done for you, you know, in that way? Yeah, no, absolutely. And look, first of all, I'd be more than happy to um, love to catch up with you, gents, face to face. If I find myself in, in Victoria or likewise, if you, you venture to Sydney, always open and always, always will give you guys the, the time. I um, love what you guys do. And I, I'd be more than happy to, to sit down over a couple of beers and even get the microphones out if, if you want and do a bit of an informal, impromptu recording. But no, look, it's very... What I kind of tried to fast forward and summarise then, it, it is difficult because there's so much more that went on during that time. So much more. And something I haven't even really mentioned was, was my mental uh, health really took a massive hit during those times. And the best one, I, I just wanted to say this on this, this platform so your listeners can get an understanding of this for people who experience mental illness. When I was at my probably my most crook in probably after my sur- big surgery, end of 2019, I remember I was really unwell and I've actually got a photo that I took a selfie of me with no top on and I'd lost a lot of weight. I had a bag at the time. I had scars. I had bloody patches here, patches there. You know, I had a bit of a messy beard, a very kind of um, thin face and I did not look well. And from anyone in the world seeing that photo, you'd go, yep, clearly he's been through a bit. He doesn't look well. But looking back at that photo, it's a pretty powerful photo. It's the face. It's the face that does it for me. I, I feel so sorry for that person because I was so unhappy. I was so unhappy at that time and I was so depressed. And there were times where I'd be dosing myself up on bloody codeine and stuff at night to just go to sleep and I wanted to numb that pain. But the biggest thing I didn't do, I didn't talk about it. And everyone would come in to visit me in hospital and you'd, I'd just kind of put my mask on, put my smile on, chat to my dad, my partner, my mates, whoever would come in and visit me. But as soon as they would leave, I'd often just like burst into tears. I was, you know, I asked for more medication from the nurses. I was in such a bad way mentally. I didn't know if I was going to get through it all. It's almost like I just had enough. The reason I'm saying that is because some of that mental pain that I experienced when, and even now I still experience bouts of mental illness. I still see a psychologist in fact, yesterday afternoon, I had a telehealth with my psychologist, Luke, who I try and speak to roughly every sort of three, four weeks. He gave me some stuff to work on the next time I see him. And it's an ongoing journey. It's not saying that you just flip, click your fingers and you're, you're better. But for people to relate to that, I've had some significant physical pain in my life. But the, the mental pain of, of when I was in those really deep bouts of depression is just as if not more painful but you can't see it. And that's the thing. It's that, it's that invisible illness. And, and I just want people to have a better understanding if they've got a, a work colleague, a loved one, someone in their life that might be going through a, a mental illness. It is hugely traumatic and it, it is very painful for them. And I really want to raise the light on that. And that's why I just wanted to quickly cover off on that because for me, mental illness is something I'm hugely passionate about. Yes, raising awareness for cancer absolutely will always be there. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, mental health is just as if not more important than the physical health side of things. So, look, to answer your question, though, mate, and I've learned a lot about myself going through these things. It, the way I look at it, if, if anyone went through what I've gone through, you, you've, you're forced, your hand's forced to survive. Your hand's forced to do what you can to physically survive. So you'll get through it. But then it's kind of how you respond after getting through it is what I, what I often say. And I kind of had this op, this choice or this, this, this moment where I thought I can either play the, the victim card 
the whole why me, life sucks, why do I keep getting the short straws, why is my bloody twin brother out there fit and healthy, why is all my mates out there living their life, why am I here shitting 10 times a day and having follow-up things and in pain and going through this journey. But then at the same time, I thought, how fucking powerful is that? One thing I have that most people don't is I've got my own unique story. So then I had that moment of, well, if I can share my story on what I've been through, not only did that help me through my recovery, especially my mental recovery, but I could potentially save a fucking life. And to me, I'm like, Jesus. And you kind of have that, that moment where you think not everyone has that opportunity to save a life. And then so by sharing my story and, and getting people messaging me like, like you, mate, you'd DOS message me and, you know, that's kind of how we, we connected. People like that that I don't even know who you think, not saying I saved your life, but just impacted in some way is so powerful. So that's really changed my perspective on having that sense of purpose in what I do every day and that whole concept of do what makes you feel good, do what makes you feel happy, surround yourself with people that, you know, that make you happy, that make you feel good, you know, don't have surround yourself with toxic relationships. And these types of things I just learned that even chatting to you guys for an hour, for me, I can see you're both great guys. I love what you're doing. We've never met, but I just get a good vibe, a good energy from, from what you guys are doing. And to me, I'd rather surround myself with good people like you two than people I may have known for years. But I go, you know what? They're just not, not right for, for my mental health at the moment. So look, to finish off with that kind of spill, ultimately, yes, I still have down days. Ultimately, yes, I can be a prick to my partner sometimes. I'm sure she's downstairs hearing this, she'll be nodding her head right now. Yeah. But at the same time, I also acknowledge that we're all human. I also acknowledge that it definitely gets better. So when I'm having those down days, I always, always say to myself, it will get better, whatever that might be, whether I'm in hospital, whether I'm going through a bad mental health moment, it will get better. And I've seen that firsthand over the years that when I think I'm at my absolute rock bottom, we always have a way to just get through that. And I go, fuck, I feel great now. So I always keep on hope that things will get better. And ultimately, all said and done, life is fucking precious. Don't take that for granted. And that's what I try and remind myself is that often we, we get caught up in trivial things from day to day. The Melbourne lockdown, it's not great. I get it. Small business owners, I get it. Families being a part, I get all of that. But at the end of the day, I believe it can also build a sense of resilience. It can also create opportunities that you may never even know existed. People like yourself who are still doing, you know, Zoom podcasts when the easy thing would have been not to do a Zoom podcast. These types of things you look back on in years to come and go, fact, that that was a a powerful moment. So um, hopefully that's a a good way to leave a little bit, a few important messages. Mate, that's a totally powerful way to, to end this podcast. And what I love about it is I've got a computer next to me with a page full of notes and we probably touched on a quarter of the content that we were going to talk about. But what I love is that this conversation went in different directions Doss and I didn't expect. And mate, I'll tell you right now, Doss and I would be more than happy to, to fly to you and, and turn the mics on because there's just so much more to dive into, even some of the stuff you've said now. But You've ended on a very positive note, just for the listeners' sake, for anyone that may have that itch that, you know, they need, they might need to get checked. There might be something going on. I know we didn't have time to talk about how to test yourself and check yourself regularly and, and get your partner and your parents and everybody else to check. But is there somewhere online that you've got that you can recommend for people now that can go and 
get a bit of a guide on what to do and, and how to check themselves? Look, absolutely. There are, there are different platforms for different, obviously, genders, demographics, etc. You know, I'm a, I'm a Movember ambassador, so I'd be, you know, I'd, I'd have to <laughs> mention them, and but in, in, a, in a good way because I truly believe for men especially, if you go to Movember.com, for all men's health related things such as you know ways to check your nuts prostate cancer for the older the older men if they're listening to this but also the mental health stuff they've got amazing tools so there if you don't know testicular cancer prostate cancer mental health and suicide prevention so they they encompass all the key areas for men's health and likewise there are there are many other amazing foundations out there for for women as well but what i will say as the the, the sort of the finishing point if you're listening to this and you, you want to kind of give yourself a bit of a goal for, for today, for tonight. It's for men and women listening. For men, I'll just say the best way to check your nuts is in the shower. So tonight, tomorrow morning, whenever you're having a shower, let the steam do its thing. Have your shower. Have a good feel around your nuts. Have a feel around. Learn to know what your normal is. And if there's any lumps, bumps, something not quite right, pain or whatever around those testicles, and you think, oh, geez, I remember what Doss and Dee were saying with Buddy Hugo about those testicles. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go book into my GP now. That's one thing every bloke listening to this can do right now. And for the, the females listening, same thing. Feel your breasts like we, we should all be doing is knowing your body, whether it's your breasts, your testicles. I'm a big one for skin checks. I've got a few friends or connections that have had melanoma and that's an easy one too. We're, we live in the Australian sun, right? We've all got freckles and moles or whatever. You should be having an annual check checkup of your skin every single year. So once again, use this episode, listening to it now, just have a bit of a look around for your freckles and your moles and book into your GP for a skin check. It takes five minutes. It takes five minutes with something that could potentially save your life. And then finally, on the mental health side of things, is that... If you're struggling or if a loved one's struggling, just know that there is so much bloody help out there. So much help. It doesn't have to necessarily be a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Even picking your phone up and calling your mate or messaging or reaching out to someone you haven't heard from in a while can go such a long way in making them feel connected. Because a good mate of mine, Gus Wallen, who's got a, a great charity, his, his motto is he truly believes suicide's the death of loneliness. And I think if we all have a shoulder that we can put our head on or someone that we can reach out to at any given time, it's going to go a long way in uh, hope for reducing some of those stats. No, I think it's, it's all important stuff, something I'm passionate about. And the final thing I'll say, noting the time, is, and this is something that I think young people don't do, and I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question listening to this and you can answer it in your head. When was it last you saw your doctor? When was it last you saw your doctor and a lot of people and i say this to my mates they say oh shit probably since i was a kid and that always blows my mind when was it last you saw your doctor and if you're thinking actually it's been too long it might be a good time to pick your phone up and book in to see your gp because you don't have to be unwell to see your gp i'm a big one for annual checkups you should build a great relationship with your gp because i tell you what prevention is undeniably one of the most important things in any illness. But on the other side of the coin, if you're feeling fantastic, but you've got a good relationship with a GP, instead of DOS going on buddy Google and diagnosing himself on Google, if something's not quite right, you feel comfortable in picking the phone up and seeing your GP. Oh, hey, Paul, how are you going? Look, I'm just wondering, can I book in for an appointment later this week or next week? 
you've got someone, you're building a relationship up and you're being proactive with your health. So there's some key messages at the end, even if two people listen to this does it tonight. Hopefully you lads will be checking your nuts in the shower tonight. I know you already have dice, then fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I will. Hugo, just lastly, mate, just want to thank you and acknowledge you for, for one, what an incredible man you are. And secondly, the resilience that comes behind your character, I truly find remarkable. I, I had a few tears just before listening and obviously because I really connect and relate to it. But this is, I'm just going to walk away from today and just feel so grateful for what I have at 26 years old. And I just want to thank you for what you're doing and sharing your story with everything you're doing with 25 Stay Alive as well. And just thank you. That's all I'm going to leave it. <laughs> No, thank you so much, Dosty. Really appreciate the time. Like I said a couple of times, love what you guys are doing. And no, it's, it's, it's humbling to chat to you both. And I appreciate those kind words. And I do look forward to that, hopefully, face-to-face catch-up one day. Yeah, no, mate, we'll, we'll make it happen. I just want to say thank you as well. I don't need to really say anything else. Dos put it really well. So thanks, Hugo. We'll put on our socials and in the show notes how to get in contact with you, 25 Stay Alive, and some of the other things you're doing. But, mate, thank you so much. No worries. And actually, a good finishing point for those listening that do want to reach out for any reason, exactly like you did, Doss. I'm always open to anyone reaching out. Whether or not I get back to them straight away or not, I will get back to them. And if someone gives their time and sharing their story or reaching out for whatever reason, you know, of course, I can only do the same. So feel free to reach out if you've got any more private questions. I'm not a doctor, but I'm more than happy to have a chat about anything, whether it's testicles, fake nuts, or whatever it might be. <laughs> All right, here you go. Thanks, Thanks a lot, mate. Cheers, Thanks, guys. Man. See you, mate.